quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Happening now, breaking news. Israel admits responsibility for an attack on an ambulance outside a Gaza hospital, saying it was being used by Hamas. The bloody scenes and reports of casualties come as tough questions are being raised about the civilian death toll in this war. As Israeli forces pound Gaza from the air and on the ground, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu insists there will be no ceasefire until Hamas hostages are freed. Israel rejecting a new U.S. appeal for a humanitarian pause in the fighting during a visit by the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. And in New York, Eric Trump wraps up his first time in the witness stand and says his father is fired up for his own testimony next week in the civil fraud trial against their family business. We're going to tell you where the case stands right now as the Trump family is put under oath. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer reporting live from Israel, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. Let's get right to the breaking news on the Israeli military now taking responsibility for an attack on an ambulance in Gaza. We want to warn our viewers that some of the images of this attack are very graphic. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is joining us right now. He's got details. He's live in Eshkelon, Israel, not very far away from Gaza. Jeremy, what more have you learned about this strike? Well, Wolf, Israel is admitting to have targeted an ambulance inside Gaza near Al-Shifa Hospital. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces saying that they, this, uh, claiming that this ambulance was being used by Hamas and saying that several Hamas operatives were killed in this strike, Wolf. Uh, but the reports on the ground, obviously those images are just absolutely uh, difficult to, to see. Uh, Fifteen people were killed in this strike. Fifty others were wounded, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, which of of course, is controlled by Hamas. Uh, Israel also says in its uh, claim of responsibility that Hamas has been known to use ambulances to transport Hamas militants as well as weaponry. But, Wolf, there are questions about the legitimacy of this target, particularly as a spokesman for the Palestinian Ministry of Health 
says that this ambulance was part of a convoy carrying wounded individuals who are heading to that Rafah crossing in order to leave Gaza and head into Egypt. And what's more, Wolf, they also say that they notified the International Red Cross of this convoy movement before it left. The Red Cross, Wolf, tonight is confirming that it did receive notification about this convoy uh, before uh, this convoy left uh, and that it received a request to accompany that convoy before it left. Now, meanwhile, Wolf, the Israeli Defense Forces are continuing to carry out their uh, ground operation inside of Gaza as well. Uh, Israeli military officials say that they have encircled Gaza City, and we know that they have been moving towards Gaza City on several fronts, from the north as well as from the south. Uh, but what's clear is that there is still very much ongoing fighting in the northern part of Gaza. Uh, Hamas, for its part, Wolf, is continuing to fire rockets uh, against Israeli towns and cities, uh, targeting those cities indiscriminately without looking at whether they are civilian or military targets. In fact, Wolf, earlier today, uh, a rocket landed about 100 meters from where a number of journalists were posted on a hill in Sterot overlooking the Gaza Strip. I want to show you the moment that this rocket landed not far from my team's position. A rocket, perhaps, or an interception. Uh, shrapnel may have fallen, but what we heard was a very, very loud boom. It appeared to be some kind of an impact uh, falling directly. And, well, that was actually the aftermath of that rocket impact. But during uh, earlier uh, when that rocket came down, my, my photojournalist, Matthias Somm, was actually able to get video of that rocket coming in uh, very fast and making a very loud impact not far from that position of journalists. It actually landed in a courtyard of a kindergarten. That kindergarten, of course, was unoccupied at the moment. Uh, but it just shows, of course, Wolf, that even as the Iron Dome does intercept the majority of those rockets, some of them do still come in. Wolf. Very scary indeed, Jeremy Diamond in Ashkelon, Israel, for us. Thank you very much. Stay safe over there. The Israeli attack on an ambulance comes just hours after the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, left Israel, declaring more needs to be done to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza. CNN's MJ Lee is over at the White House following Blinken's latest mission here to the Middle East. MJ, did Secretary Blinken get any assurances from Israel about aid to Gaza or civilian casualties? Well, Wolf, this marked Secretary Blinken's third visit to Israel since the war broke out, and he had a blunt message that he wanted to deliver to Israel. Uh, he said that uh, Israel must do more to protect Palestinian civilians. Uh, this, of course, reflects the growing concern within the Biden administration about the rising civilian death toll in Gaza and the humanitarian suffering, suffering there uh, as well. And it also reflects the private warnings that U.S. officials had been delivering to their Israeli counterparts, uh, saying that unless Israel significantly changes course to mitigate the amount of humanitarian suffering in Gaza, that uh, its uh, support from the global community is going to erode. And we saw Secretary Blinken today in Israel uh, taking that warning public, saying that Israel is at risk of losing its support from its allies. Here's what he said. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. Failure to do so plays into the hands of Hamas and other terror groups. There will be no partners for peace if they're consumed by humanitarian catastrophe and alienated by any perceived indifference to their plight. 
And Wolf, in his meetings with uh, Israeli leaders and the Israeli war cabinet, uh, as a part of that push to have Israel uh, minimize as much as possible civilian casualties, we saw Secretary Blinken making a hard push for this humanitarian pause or humanitarian pauses, uh, saying that those would be essential for getting more humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza and to make sure that uh, civilian deaths can be minimized. But we saw Prime Minister Netanyahu after that meeting with Secretary Blinken uh, rejecting that call, essentially saying that they are not going to consider any pauses unless hostages in Gaza can get out. We, of course, know that those negotiations and those talks have been ongoing, but we've not seen a big breakthrough uh, so far. Uh, now, here in the U.S., Wolf, the calls for uh, those humanitarian pauses, those have been growing as well, and it's not just coming from uh, the Biden administration. We saw a group of more than a dozen uh, Democratic senators writing a new letter uh, saying that those kinds of pauses would be necessary, and that is uh, on top of some of the growing calls that we are seeing here for a general ceasefire as well, something that the administration has not called for. Wolf. MJ Lee at the White House for us. MJ, thank you very much. Also tonight, uh, the Israeli military is on heightened alert at its northern border amid escalating rocket attacks from inside Lebanon. The leader of Hezbollah warning that uh, that front could explode into a wider war as he speaks out in praise of the Hamas attacks on Israel. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is joining us from inside Lebanon right now. He's in the capital of Beirut. Ben, this is the first time we've heard from Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, uh, since the war began. Update our viewers. Yeah, this, he hasn't uh, said a word, Wolf, uh, since the 7th of October, and much anticipation and, and speculation has been going on about why. But finally, this afternoon at 3 p.m. local time, he finally emerged on the airwaves across the Middle East. They turned out in the thousands to hear their leader, Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah, speaking out for the first time since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. All options, he warned, are open and we can exercise them at any moment. Already Hezbollah and Israel are engaged in a deadly exchange of fire along the border. Hezbollah. Hezbollah has buried almost 60 of its fighters killed so far. It was a speech watched closely across the Middle East, while other Arab leaders beseech the U.S. to put pressure on Israel to relent in its offensive in Gaza. Hezbollah, well-armed and battle-hardened, is the only one putting military pressure on Israel. Tying down in the process, Nasrallah claimed, a third of Israel's army. The U.S. has deployed two carrier groups to the eastern Mediterranean to deter Hezbollah and others from joining the fight. Nasrallah's response? I tell the Americans threats and intimidation against us and the resistance in the region are pointless. But despite the high expectations for the speech, it ended ambiguously without a clear indication of where Hezbollah and Iran's other allies in the region will go. In the lead-up to the speech, Hezbollah supporters put out what some called trailers with an ominous tone of what might be coming. After the speech, the word here in Lebanon was that the trailers were better than the film.
And what we've seen in the aftermath of that speech is that there's been widespread relief. Many people here, in fact, probably the vast majority, do not want to see Lebanon dragged into a war with Israel. People still remember what happened in 2006 when for 33 days uh, the war raged in the south and there were massive bombings uh, in Beirut as well. People before the speech, Wolf, uh, many people tried to leave the country. Others went to safer homes in the mountains. Others were storing up supplies in the event that the speech would really escalate the situation. But that didn't happen, and I think uh, people are feeling a, a lot more comfortable here in Beirut. That doesn't mean that Lebanon is out of the woods at the moment. Uh, this is a very unstable situation. But for now, it appears it's going to be essentially more of the same as far as what's going on on the border between Israel and Lebanon. Wolf? Uh, we, sh we shall see. Ben Wiedemann uh, in Beirut for us. Ben, thanks for that report. Joining us now here in Tel Aviv, Mark Regev. He's the senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Let me get your uh, thoughts, first of all, on this Israeli strike against this ambulance leaving this major hospital in Gaza. Well, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, have released a, a detailed statement. They say that Hamas was using this ambulance to transfer their uh, fighters from one position to another. That's, of course, a war crime. You're not supposed to use ambulances to, you know, to move your, your combatants from one place to another. In doing so, I mean, we don't target ambulances, but in doing so, they made that ambulance a legitimate target. And we made a choice uh, to, to make an exception in this case. We thought the target was important enough to take it out, and we took out the target. Will you release, will Israel, the government, release any evidence that this ambulance was being used by Hamas as a military vehicle? I, uh, I believe the IDF has already said they hope to be able to re release pictures and maybe even video soon. How soon, you think? I can't speak for them. But you understand that the public relations uh, pressure that Israel is under right now for doing this on the heels of those two airstrikes on that Jabalia refugee camp. Look, we know that there have been documented cases in the past of, of Hamas using ambulances. We know that Hamas has built infrastructure, military infrastructure, their command posts underneath hospitals. We saw what Hamas was capable of doing when they invaded Israel and, and, and massacred our people. They raped, they burnt people alive, they, they shot young people in a ravine who were attending an open-air concert. They shot children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children. These people are capable of that sort of brutality. Should you really be surprised that they'd be capable of using an ambulance as a machine of war? Is Israel safer now as a result of the airstrikes going on in Gaza? We'll be safer when this is operation is over and Hamas will have been destroyed as a military machine and, and Gaza will not be run anymore by this brutal and horrific terrorist organization. What do you say to Secretary Blinken and President Biden for that matter who are urging Israel to cut back on the airstrikes because of the civilian casualties? So we believe we can pursue a relentless campaign against Hamas's terror machine and at the same time make a distinction and do our best to keep civilians out of the crossfire and to provide them with humanitarian support. But you see a lot of civilians are getting killed, including kids. First of all, I don't want to see anyone, you know, innocent civilian caught up in the crossfire, especially children, right? We, we wouldn't like to see anyone, any children killed. 
But unfortunately, our, our strategy is made difficult by the fact that Hamas deliberately uses Gaza's civilians as human shields for their war machine. Let me ask you one final quick question. A pause. You hear the Secretary of State asking Israel to at least consider a pause in all the fighting that's going on right now uh, and, and maybe even some sort of temporary ceasefire. So we're open to a pause. That includes a release of hostages. People say a humanitarian pause. Okay, what is more humanitarian than achieving the release of the people who were brutally kidnapped and are held now in underground, I don't know, dungeons somewhere? The Red Cross has not been allowed to visit them, and even though they've asked, surely that should be part of any sort of arrangement for humanitarian pause. Mark Regev, thanks very much for coming in. My pleasure. Appreciate it very much. Mark Regev, a senior advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Coming up, what one Israeli family was forced to go through after Hamas terrorists stormed their house. My emotional interview with a woman who gives us a gut-wrenching look at their horrifying nightmare and new twists in the New York civil fraud trial against Donald Trump and his adult children. Stay with us, you're in the Situation Room. New developments tonight in former President Donald Trump's New York civil fraud case. The judge overseeing the trial now expanding the gag order and Trump's daughter Ivanka withdrawing her appeal to get out of testifying next week. CNN's Kara Scannell is just outside the courthouse in Manhattan. Kara, so why did this judge expand, first of all, this gag order? Well, well, the judge expanded this gag order after Donald Trump's attorneys repeatedly raised questions about the judge's law clerk and letters and notes that she was passing to him during the trial. They said that there is a suggestion here that there is bias because of the law clerk's political leanings. So the judge has heard them bring this up after the past several days, and he finally has had enough. So he's extended the gag order, saying that attorneys are now prohibited from speaking either in the court or outside of the court about any communications that the judge has had with any members of his staff. And the judge saying that one reason that he's doing this is because they have received hundreds of threats through emails, calls, voicemails, letters uh, to his chamber saying that that outweighs any First Amendment rights that they may have to, to raise these issues. And the Trump's attorneys have already made the record in this case forward. He's saying that speaks for itself if they want to raise it on appeal. Now, this order came after the day of testimony. Eric Trump finishing his testimony. He was on the stand in total for about four hours. So now that he has testified, his brother Don Jr. has testified. The next one up Monday is former President Donald Trump. He will take the stand after court today. Eric Trump said his father is ready. My father is certainly going to be here. I know he's very fired up to be here. And he thinks that this is one of the most incredible injustices that he's ever seen. And it truly is. So Donald Trump will testify on Monday. Now, that is expected to go all day. Then on Wednesday, Ivanka Trump will take the stand after she dropped a challenge to try to block her testimony. Wolf? All right, Kara, stay with us. So don't go too far away. I want to bring in Shan Wu right now, former federal prosecutor, to get some analysis of what's going on, all these dramatic developments. Uh, uh, Shan, uh, Eric Trump says his father is, quote, fired up about testifying. What sort of risk is Trump, Donald Trump, potentially taking if he does testify under oath without taking the Fifth Amendment? Well, Wolf, you uh, never want your client to be all fired up to take the witness stand. Uh, you want them rather calm and methodical, ready to answer questions. Uh, if former President Trump wants to get up there and be all fire and brimstone, make a lot of speeches, it's not going to go very well for him because 
a jury might care about that, the press does, but a judge is not going to be interested in that. He's going to start to probably warn Trump to answer the questions rather than meandering off uh, into the wilderness there. So that kind of attitude is not really the best one to have. You want to be clear, you want to be calm, and sound like you're being helpful. Trump briefly testified once in the trial, Shan, but this time will be very different. What can we expect? Well, I think uh, it will be quite different this time. It'll be the AG's uh, lawyers questioning him. They're going to want to really drill down on facts, uh, testing what he knew, probably showing him communications. And what I would expect is he's going to really go arm's length on this and say he was too busy, he relied on the accountants, uh, sort of a version of what you heard from his sons. Um, but he's likely to be much more blustery about it. And I think he'll lean heavily into the idea that not only as head of the company, but as a former president of the United States, he was much too busy to be checking on his accountant's figures. And I think that's where it's going to go. So, Kara, let, let's look ahead when Trump starts to testify under oath. Give us a sense, your sense, and you're there on the scene. You're speaking to experts over there. What's your sense? What are we going to anticipate? I mean, what we have seen throughout this trial is that there has been a lot of objections during the testimony, particularly when the former president is in attendance. So it is likely we could see his lawyers object to a lot of lines of questionings that the attorney general's office uh, begins to press the former president on. And we could possibly see, as Shan was saying, the former president start to expand and speechify. And there, the, throughout the course of this trial, the judge has tried to rein that in, having to have witnesses answer yes or no to certain questions and not give speeches. So he has tried to tamp that down. Uh, but it will certainly be, as Shanna's pointed out, you know, this moment of tension will have the former president sitting just, you know, inches, feet from the judge who he has criticized and attacked on social media with the New York attorney general expected to be in the courtroom, as she has been every time he's been there. And it's a high stakes uh, testimony for him. You know, he's already testified in a deposition where he's tried to distance himself, saying he relied a lot on his internal accountants. But he has also demonstrated that he knows how he's valued properties. He has spoken very publicly throughout this trial about his disagreements about the value of Mar-a-Lago. So a lot of this are things that he can be pressed on under oath, and there is so much at stake here for the future of his business in New York. Wolf? See what happens next week. Karis Cannell, Shan Wu, thank you both. Appreciate it very, very much. Up next, my powerful, very emotional conversation with an Israeli woman who endured the unthinkable during the Hamas attack. Her daughter murdered and her family held hostage for hours, all while the terrorists live-streamed their suffering online. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we have some breaking news. I want to go to CNN's Paula Reed. She's watching uh, one of these uh, these investigative tr- uh, cases going on with Donald Trump. She's got some major news that is just breaking right now. What are you learning, Paula? And that's right, Wolf. A federal appeals court has frozen a gag order that has been imposed on former President Trump here in Washington, D.C. Now, this is a gag order related to the federal prosecution of the former president for alleged election subversion. Here, the appeals court has granted a request from the former president's legal team to freeze the gag order and actually hear arguments on the issue in just a few days. Actually, they've scheduled this for November 20th. They are clearly mindful of the fact that they need to move this issue along swiftly and likely not delay this case too far into the election cycle next year. Now, in this case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, the judge overseeing the case here in Washington, She imposed a gag order on the former president, limiting his ability to target witnesses in the case, court staff members, and even prosecutors. And this came after a a series of statements made by the former president. We know he also has a similar gag order for the case up in New York. But the former president's lawyers argue that this is a violation of his First Amendment and that he should be able to criticize, for example, prosecutors. They note the fact that he is a candidate for the presidency, and they say that his, quote, political speech is entitled to the highest protection. But now this case will be considered by a three-judge panel in the Court of Appeals, and it'll be a really important decision because gag orders are increasingly uh, becoming a hot-button issue in the many cases former President Trump is facing. Certainly is. All right, Paula, thanks for that breaking news. Appreciate it very much. And we'll take a quick break. Much more right after this. Here in Israel this week, I had the chance to speak with a woman named Gali Idan, a victim of the Hamas attacks, who has been living a nightmare since October 7th. Early that morning, air raid sirens started going off in the Nahaloz kibbutz near the Gaza border. Gali ran into the shelter with her husband, Sahi, their 9-year-old son, Shahar, their 11-year-old daughter, Yael, and their 17-year-old daughter, Mayan. Then the Hamas terrorists entered their house and tried to force their way into the shelter, shooting and killing Mayan through the door. The Dunn's family and friends saw what was happening because the Hamas terrorists used a neighbor's phone to live stream the attack on Facebook. After murdering their daughter, the Hamas terrorists also took Gali's phone and live streamed the rest of her family being held hostage on the floor for hours. In a final act of terror, Hamas kidnapped uh, Gali's husband, Sahi, and took him to Gaza. Now to my conversation with Gali. We want to warn our viewers, what you're about to hear and see is disturbing. We woke up because they were screaming uh, that uh, alert for missiles are, uh, are on, and our daughters yelled to come to the shelter. Sahi and I looked at each other and said, 
something's wrong. Then they got a message that uh, there's a fear of terrorist uh, uh, attack on the kibbutz. They might be crossing the, the, the yeah, border. Yeah, they might be crossing the, the border into the kibbutz and crossing the fence into the kibbutz and the houses. So they told us to keep quiet. Now, you need to understand that kids, when they're fearful, they cannot be quiet. We were all in this tiny room, which is the kids' room, the sleeping area, because uh, so we won't wake them up. They started to say that they are walking in, in the path, you know, in the kibbutz and... The terrorists. Yes, so Tzachi took a chair. Sorry. He took a chair and put it near the, the door because we don't have an actual lock on the door. And we were like waiting and being quiet, just, you know, fearful and crying. The kids were crying and trying to calm them down. And between our house and the neighbor's house, and we heard the glass shatter. And after a while, we heard um, somebody's walking in the house. You heard them walking on the, on the broken glass. And it wasn't like one person, you, you could hear. And we were quieting the kids and, and you know, like... You were huddled together. Yeah, me and, me and Shachar and, and Yael underneath the bed with Mayan and Sachi was near the door and we were really, really scared. And Were you hearing Arabic? Uh, no, they were not talking until they got into the door, the shelter door, and then we heard in Hebrew. Uh, they banged on the door really loud and said, uh, open the door, open the door. Help open the door. In Hebrew? They said In that? Hebrew. Uh, unfortunately, that was uh, Tomel. He was killed afterwards. Uh, he was a 17-year-old boy from the kibbutz. And they used him to open doors, like a bait. So it was Tomer who was speaking in yeah. Hebrew. And then when they saw Tzachi, Tzachi locked the door in and, and struggle it, you know, to, to lock it real hard. And they, they, st they started shouting, um, um, uh, we do not shoot, we do not shoot, op uh, open, open. I will not shoot, open the door, or I will not shoot. You could hear three or four of them shouting and Sahi struggling the door. And they fought him to open the door. And they're still shouting and shouting. And then uh, Mayan saw that there's a crack starting to open, and she jumped on the door to help Tzachi close it. At that moment, there was um, uh, um, a gunshot. I will shoot. I will shoot now. I was hanging on to one of the kids. I think it was Yael. I'm not sure. And, and then uh, Tzachi was shouting, who, who, who got shot, who got shot? And... and uh, um, and then he said, it was Mayan, it's Mayan, it's Mayan. Uh, help, help, it's Mayan. So your daughter. It's my daughter. It's my 18 and four days daughter. And, and, and he was, he was, I, I didn't see him because there was not light yet, but. Uh, the light came on, and, and I saw Tzachi. I think he was over her, or, or she dropped near him. Go out! Go out! I didn't see her yet. And then uh, Tzachi was yelling, she's dead, she's, help her, help her, she's dying, she's dying. Because 
He was in a pile of blood of her blood. He was sitting there, you know, with his hands on his head. And he was saying, Mayan, help her. Gali, help, help Mayan. And I went to her and I saw her on her back, straight, still, you know, shaking. The body was still shaking, but she wasn't there because when I checked her, he said, check where she's bleeding from. And I checked and it was, I went up to the head and then I felt the injury. And I said, I said to Tzachi, she's gone. She's gone. She, she's, not, she's not here. She's gone. And they took us out immediately. They took us, everybody. The terrorists. Yes. And I told the kids not to look. I sheltered them not to look because I didn't want them to see their dead sister in a pile of blood. Tzachi went out with his hands and knees all, all, all bloody. Then afterwards, I realized that I was on live on Facebook with Tomel's mother's phone, and that everybody saw the entering and shooting the door, the door of the shelter, and killing my aunt, actually. They set us on the floor and took my phone and said, is this your phone? I said, yes. What do you need my phone for? And he said, um, I want to do live on Facebook. What's your code? I gave him the code, and he just started to say, repeat after me. And he said, uh, I don't remember the exact, the exact message, but uh, he told me something to say that uh, about... Uh, the government, or, or, or uh, I, I don't remember the, the, the exact thing, but that they are here and they're fighting. And then they took the phone and actually started filming us live. <laughs> Now, I thought it was done, and I'm still trying to, to understand what happened, or, or shocked. And Sachi was broken, he couldn't speak, he was crying. And the kids asked Sachi, what, are you bleeding? And he said, no, and he just nodded his head, and I, I had to tell the kids that they just killed Mayan, and it's her blood. And, and, um, and then the kids started crying and shouting, and they said to to the terrorists, to the hot, you know, that holding us hostage said, don't kill us, please don't kill us. And, and uh, they were filming it all the time. I realized it now, but I didn't know then. And I was still in shock about Mayan. And then the red color, the alert started shouting that there are missiles coming. And, and I, I told them, I tried to to jump to them to the shelter, and they say, "No, no, you're staying here." He said, "Don't worry, our commander knows we're here, so he won't shoot some missiles in here. You're safe." 
And we're going to hear more of the Don family story in just a moment. Stay with us for that. There are a lot more tears coming up. We'll be right back. I've been sharing the very emotional story of Gali Idan, whom I met earlier this week here in Israel. They lived in a kibbutz in southern Israel near the Gaza border. And on October 7th, Hamas terrorists entered their house, shot through the door to the shelter, killing their 17-year-old daughter, Mayan. The terrorists then held the rest of the family hostage in their home for hours, live streaming the whole thing on Facebook. And when the terrorists left, they kidnapped Gali's husband, here is more of what Gali told me about their ordeal. I want to warn our viewers once again, what you're about to see and hear is disturbing. They put us on the ground and said, stay here, don't move. If you move, you're dead. Um, and they uh, took all the knives that we had, said, don't do anything stupid. Uh, and meanwhile, Yael, my, my kid, my 11-year-old, my she started communicating with the commander, asking him, why are you doing this? Why did you kill my sister? And he said, don't worry, your sister with, is with Allah. She's safe now. She's with Allah. Tzachi, all this time, cannot talk. He's shocked. He's not functioning because he saw his kid dead. And he was just holding his head and crying. And I was looking at him and, you know, when you have this Im impression of nothing behind it, he was like that. Tzachi is one of the strongest men I know. Every time that something happens, he's the one that holds the situation. It, it, was, it was painful to see him like that. And... Then they said, okay, you and you, and they were pointing at Tzachi and, and Domri, and said, you and you get up, you're coming with us. And they uh, cuffed his hand with uh, st white stripes and barefooted also, I think. And they said, uh, okay, you're coming with us. And they took them. They were uh, in front of the back door. They asked whose car is it? And uh, Tzachi said, this is my car. To us, they said, okay, stay, stay on the ground or you'll be killed. We'll shoot you or you'll be dead. So we stayed. We told our husbands, Lishai and me, we said, we, said, we love you. Don't, don't do anything stupid. Don't be a hero. Just do what they say, please. And the kids started yelling, don't take him, don't take him. And... and, and and they said, no, no, it's okay, he'll be back, he'll be back. They promised the kids he'll be back. We, we couldn't do anything, and it was until, uh, I think, 5.30 in the afternoon that, that uh, we heard uh, people talking around us, you know, and we just looked outside, peeked outside, Bishai peeked outside and said, there are Somebody is walking around the house. They said Tzal Tzal, which is IDF, IDF. There are uh, actually our saviors. They, they took us out of the house, actually. But the kids didn't want to go. They said, please, I don't want anybody else to be dead in this house. I don't want anybody else get murdered. The kids didn't want to go. It took me 20 minutes outside the kibbutz just to breathe. 
because I couldn't breathe all the way. I held Shachar on me and Yael near me and I, we went, we were now like this. Sorry. Your 11-year-old daughter and your 9-year-old son. Yes. And uh, Tzachi had already been taken, already been kidnapped. Yeah. And Maya and your daughter was dead. It was her, dead. And her body was left in the house. It was left in the house. I, I couldn't, they didn't let us go there. We asked them to go to see Mayan, the terrorist. They didn't let me see my, my, my daughter before I went. They didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't say goodbye. I couldn't. She stayed there for three days. In the Her house. body, yes, in a pile of blood, you know, on the floor. A very, very emotional interview from just part of our time here in Israel this week. And we're going to share more of Gali's story in the next hour of the Situation Room. You'll want to watch this. Very, very powerful. We also have a lot more coming up on other breaking news we're following here in Tel Aviv, including that Israeli strike earlier today on an ambulance in Gaza and those first comments from Hezbollah's leader, Hezbollah's leader on whether the Israel-Hamas war could broaden into a larger regional conflict. There's a lot of breaking news. We're covering it all. We'll be right back. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Happening now, breaking news. A federal appeals court just froze the gag order against Donald Trump in the election interference case in Washington. We're going to break down the decision and what it could mean for the former president as the criminal proceedings against him move forward. Also tonight, Israel defends its airstrike on an ambulance in Gaza, claiming the vehicle was being used by a Hamas terrorist cell. New reaction coming in to the disturbing scenes outside a hospital and the reported casualties. And CNN confronts embattled Republican Congressman George Santos about an alleged campaign fraud scheme, the latest charge against him on, a, on top of a litany of lies. Stand by for that exclusive interview. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer in Tel Aviv, Israel, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. We begin this hour with the breaking news back in Washington. Donald Trump's gag order in the federal election interference case just put on hold. CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed is working this important story for us. Paula, tell us more about this ruling. Wolf here, the federal appeals court has temporarily frozen a gag order imposed on former President Trump here in Washington. And they have fast-tracked an oral argument about whether this is constitutional. And they'll hear those arguments on November 20th. Now, this gag order was imposed by Judge Tanya Chutkin. She's the federal judge overseeing the election subversion case brought by special counsel Jack Smith here in the district. And she imposed this gag order, barring Trump from targeting 
witnesses in the case, members of the court staff, and even the special counsel itself, the prosecutors working on this case. And she imposed that gag order at the request of prosecutors, but she did not limit his ability to talk about Washington, D.C., the potential jury pool, or the Justice Department, which prosecutors had also sought protections for those two groups. But here, she has argued, she has said, look, I understand he has a First Amendment right, but that must yield to the orderly administration of justice. And she said that she has to put on a trial. She needs to protect members of her staff, people involved in this case, just trying to do their jobs. And that is why she has imposed this gag order. And she also declined to freeze it herself while these appeals play out. The former president's lawyers, though, have argued that this is a violation of his First Amendment. They point to the fact that he is once again running for the White House and that what they describe as, quote, political speech deserves the highest protection. But a three-judge panel will hear arguments on this issue in just a few weeks. This is a pretty fast track here, pretty quick move uh, from this decision to freeze two oral arguments. Wolf, it appears that the Court of Appeals is mindful of the need to decide this issue quickly and keep this case moving along. Paula, can the government uh, appeal this ruling? Uh, well, this is the appeals process. It will depend on what the appeals court ultimately decides. Uh, they here are going to hear arguments uh, on November 20th. Then they will make a decision. If either side does not like how that turns out, they can certainly appeal to the Supreme Court. All right, Paula, stand by. We've got more questions for you. Also tonight, we're following another. We're following new developments in another of Trump's uh, uh, cases, the civil fraud case in New York. CNN's Kara Scannell is just outside the courthouse in Manhattan for us. Kara, tell us about Eric Trump's testimony today under oath and what we can expect from Donald Trump and Ivanka's testimony scheduled next week. Well, Eric Trump completed his testimony today. All told, he was on the stand for about four hours over the past two days. And the attorney general's office was really focusing in on these financial statements that are at the center of this lawsuit. Eric Trump testifying that he relied on accountants and lawyers. And when they gave him comfort that the statements were, quote, perfect, he said he was happy to sign off on them. He also said he wouldn't sign something that was inaccurate. And just a reminder, the judge has already found that these statements are fraudulent. Now, outside the courthouse, Eric Trump was defiant, also standing by his testimony and attacking the attorney general's investigation. Take a listen. The last couple of days have gone great. You know why they've gone great? Because we haven't done a damn thing wrong. And they dragged Don and I into it as collateral damage. You know why? Because if you can line up as many Trumps as you possibly can, she can sit in court for an extra couple days and then she can send fundraising emails every single day to her donor base saying, I'm going after Trump. Now, Donald Trump will be on the stand on Monday. He's expected to sit for a full day of questioning under oath by the attorney general's office. He'll be sitting just inches from the judge who he has attacked on social media. And the attorney general is likely to be in the courtroom. She has attended every court date that the former president has been in. Once his testimony wraps, then it will be Ivanka Trump's turn. She stopped her effort to block her testimony, dropping her appeal. So she will be testifying on Wednesday. After that, the New York attorney general's office is expected to rest their case, and then it will be Donald Trump's turn to see if he's going to put on any defense. Wolf? All right, Kara, thank you. Kara Scannell in New York for us. Uh, appreciate it. Paula Reed is still with us. I also want to bring in former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, along with former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Uh, to all of you, thanks very much for joining us. Ellie, let me start with you. What's your reaction to this freeze? Are you surprised? 
Well, Wolf, I've never seen anything quite like this, I have to say. And just so people can sort of follow the history here quickly, Judge Chutkin imposed the gag order first, but then she put it on hold to give Donald Trump's team a chance to appeal it. However, Donald Trump then pretty much immediately violated it while it was on hold. And so Judge Chutkin said, okay, I'm unfreezing. I'm putting the gag order back in place. And what the appeals court has now done is said, hold on, we're going to put it on hold. So as we sit here a few minutes after 6 p.m. Eastern time, the gag order's on hold. But I take two lessons out of this. First of all, the appeals court is taking Donald Trump's First Amendment argue ser argument seriously. They're going to hear him out. But second of all, they've signaled to Donald Trump, you're on a very short leash here. We intend to move very, very quickly. So we'll have to wait and see what the appeals court does in the next couple days. Important point. Uh, Jennifer Rogers, as you know, Trump has argued that this gag order violated his First Amendment rights. And as Ellie just said, it, it looks like the appeals court is taking that argument seriously, right? They are. There are some thorny issues here, Wolf. I mean, we never before have had a presidential candidate under indictment making comments about his rival and his rival's Justice Department who's prosecuting them. So there really are uncharted territory here, which is why I think the appellate court does want to take its time and it makes sense for them to freeze the gag order while they do so, so that Trump can ultimately say he was somehow harmed by this. I do think though, and Ellie was hinting at this, it would be really foolhardy, I think, of Trump to violate the gag order that isn't currently in place, but to violate the terms of it now, it would give the special counsel's office a lot of ammunition to say to the appellate court, listen, this is why we need this. Look at what he's saying and look at the potential impact on the all the parties here. Let me go back to Paula while I have you, Paula. This is, is some rare good news for Trump <laughs> and his many, many legal problems that we all know about. What does this order mean for the case? What do you think? Well, for the time being, uh, he is not restricted in his ability uh, to discuss prosecutors, uh, witnesses, and court staff, though, as our colleague just noted, Probably not a good idea to do that right now, right before this goes before the appellate court. But we have seen when gag orders have been lifted uh, in the past, he sometimes takes the opportunity to really play at the edges uh, of what he is allowed to do. All defendants have certain restrictions. You are not supposed to intimidate witnesses, right? And it's, it's unheard of to attack prosecutors or attack the judge. So an extraordinary circumstance here. His team, though, at least wanted to be heard by the appellate court, and potentially they could try to appeal this all the way to the Supreme Court, depending how this goes, on this issue of political speech and the potential infringement on her, his First Amendment right. That is the argument that they are making, and they will at least be heard before this three-judge panel. It's unclear, though, which way this will go. Ellie, uh, this gag order, as you know, was put in place because Trump was accused of actually threatening people. Does that mean he could go back to doing that now, even if it's not advisable? Boy, I would advise strongly against that. Technically, he can now comment on the witnesses. But as Jennifer said, if he does that, this court of appeals might very well say, okay, you've pushed us here. We're going to reinstitute it. And just to be clear, Wolf, when Judge Chutkin gave Trump's team the courtesy of putting it on hold a few days ago, within hours, Trump was out on social media attacking Mark Meadows, attacking Bill Barr, both of whom are likely to be crucial witnesses in this case. It would have violated the gag order had Judge Chutkin not put it on hold. So both levels of courts here are giving Trump some leeway, but he'd be very ill-advised to continue violating that. Jennifer, do you expect that this gag order will ultimately come back at least in some form? 
I'm sorry, Wolf, I missed the question. Do you think this gag order will eventually come back at least in some form? I do. I think particularly the part about attacking witnesses is bulletproof. I don't think the appellate court will overturn that. There could be some changes on the margins about commenting on the special counsel's office. Uh, but I do think certainly at least part of it, the witness part, is definitely going to stay in place once the appellate court has a chance to hear it thoroughly. I'm wondering, Paula, how unusual is this move from the appeals court? Well, it's not uncommon for them to agree to hear a dispute like this. We are, as we are so often with former President Trump, just in an extraordinary situation. And the question of the limits of free speech for a criminal defendant who's also a leading candidate for the White House, I mean, that's something that's just never been contemplated by the courts before. So it's not surprising that this appellate court is willing to take up this case hear arguments on both sides and render a decision, give some clarity, because this is likely an issue that could come up again in this case and potentially in other cases. Because, of course, at the state level, he's also under a gag order in New York, but he's also facing another federal prosecution in Florida with a special counsel. It's possible this could come up there. So it would be good to get maybe some clarity, at least from this federal court and possibly, possibly the Supreme Court on this. All right, we'll see, we shall see. Paula, Jennifer, and Ellie, guys, thank you very, very much. Uh, just ahead, there's more news we're following. An ambulance outside of a Gaza hospital hit by an Israeli airstrike. This as Israeli troops surround Gaza City right now. And, and to see in an exclusive interview with embattled Republican Congressman George Santos, what he has to say about his political future. Lots of news today. Stay with us. You're in the situation. We're back with breaking news here in the Middle East. The Israeli military acknowledging that its war against Hamas has led it to strike another controversial target, an ambulance outside a Gaza hospital. A warning, some of the scenes from this attack are graphic. Let's go to CNN's Nick Robertson. He's joining us from Sderot in Israel, not far from Gaza. He's following uh, this breaking story for us. Nick, what more are we learning about this strike? Well, the hospital is saying, Al-Shifa hospital officials there are saying that 15 people were killed and 50 injured in this strike. And the International Committee for the Red Cross say they are aware that uh, the hospital was organizing a convoy of ambulances for a medical evacuation from the hospital in the north of Gaza there to the south of Gaza, where the IDF has said that there is a safe humanitarian zone. Um, the Red Cross weren't actually involved with the convoy, but they were aware that it was being established and it was leaving the hospital. And what the IDF say is, look, uh, we had intelligence that there were uh, IDF, uh, rather Hamas operatives and Hamas weapons being smuggled out on those ambulances. And they say that's why they targeted that particular convoy. So it was, again, intelligence leading to a specific targeted strike. But once again, as we've seen, civilian casualties uh, as a result. The total now in Gaza, according to the Hamas-led Ministry of Health officials, there is more than 9,000 civilian deaths and more than 22,000 civilian casualties. So the IDF, very clear, this was specifically targeting Hamas, who were hiding out, they say, in one of those ambulances, Wolf. All right, Nick Robertson reporting from Sterot in Israel. Thanks very much. 
I want to go to Israel's northern front right now. On, on heightened alert, I'm told, the northern front amid a new warning from Hezbollah about potentially a wider Middle East war. CNN's Jim Shudo is joining us from northern Israel right now, not far from Lebanon. Jim, the leader of Hezbollah spoke publicly today for the first time since the Hamas attack on Israel. What did we learn today about that group's intentions? Well, Nasrallah said that he is watching uh, Hamas closely. He praised the October 7th attacks. Uh, and he said it is possible that another front could open up, that Hezbollah could enter this war at some point. But he did not order his forces into the breach, as it were, to open up a second front here. That had been the fear. There had been a great deal of anticipation here in the north. Uh, I know that U.S. and Israeli military officials were watching his words very closely. And as you mentioned, northern Israel was on a heightened state of alert in advance of his speech because they feared that's exactly what the Hezbollah leader was going to do, announce he was ordering his forces in. But he didn't do that. He said it was possible, but not doing it today. In fact, he seemed to make a case for the status quo, saying that Hezbollah's threats and presence on the southern border of Lebanon, not far from where we are right here, was enough to already occupy Israel's attention. And it is true that some 70,000 forces have been deployed to the north. But uh, he, he seemed to say that is enough for now. Uh, we should also note that he seemed to make a deliberate effort to put some space between Hezbollah and Hamas for those October 7th attacks, praising them, praising those depraved uh, terror attacks on October 7th, but saying, in his words, it was a 100% Palestinian operation. That is to say, Hezbollah was not involved. He even said that Hezbollah was not bothered, that it had not been given advance notice of those attacks. So it seemed an effort there by the Hezbollah leader to put some space between himself and Hamas to say that he reserves the right to attack in numbers from the, from the north. But Wolf, to this point, has not yet given those orders. And I'll tell you, the, the anticipation, the, the nervousness was high, given that last night we saw some of the, some of the largest barrage of Hezbollah rockets into, into northern Israel. We have not, though, I should note, seen that tonight. Right, that's good. Uh, Jim Shudo, thanks very much. In northern Israel, stay safe over there. We'll stay in close touch with you. Just ahead, the growing calls for a Gaza ceasefire from Democrats in the U.S. Congress. I'll speak with the top Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That and a lot more coming up. Tonight, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Jordan after urgent war talks with officials here in Israel about the war with Hamas and the danger to civilians. CNN's M.J. Lee is covering Blinken's mission for us. She's joining us from the White House right now. M.J., what message did Blinken, Blinken actually deliver today in public and in private? Yeah, Wolf, it says a lot that this was Secretary Blinken's third visit to Israel since this war uh, broke out. And he had a tough and blunt message to deliver to Israel. He said uh, Israel needed to simply do more to uh, to. Uh, do away with and protect uh, Palestinian civilian uh, lives. Uh, this, of course, has been a big message uh, coming from U.S. officials. And we know that this is a message that reflects uh, the growing concern within the Biden White House about what they see uh, as the rising civilian uh, casualties and the humanitarian suffering uh, in Gaza. And we know that privately there have been warnings delivered by U.S. officials to their Israeli counterparts that uh, unless uh, Israel 
Israel takes a different approach uh, to mitigate some of the civilian suffering uh, that the, uh, the support that Israel has from the global community is going to erode and that there isn't much time left. And we saw Secretary Blinken uh, taking those private warnings public when he was in Israel today. Uh, we also know that when he was meeting with these Israeli leaders uh, and Israel's uh, war cabinet, one thing that he made a hard push for were these humanitarian pauses. I think we have sound of Secretary Blinken talking about the importance of those pauses. Here he is. With regard to uh, humanitarian pauses, again, we see this as a way of further facilitating uh, the ability to get assistance in. We see it uh, as a way also, and, and, and very importantly, of uh, creating a better um, uh, environment in which hostages uh, can be uh, released. Uh, and this is a very important piece. But of course, uh, Wolf, we saw Prime Minister Netanyahu after his meeting with Secretary Blinken uh, rejecting those calls for uh, these pauses and fighting, essentially saying Israel uh, is not going to do that unless hostages being held in Gaza can be released. Uh, and it's important to note, uh, Wolf, too, that here in the U.S., uh, those calls for humanitarian pauses, they're not just coming from the administration. We are hearing uh, a number of Democrats now joining uh, in that call as well, including in a new letter. We saw more than a dozen uh, Democratic senators saying that this was important for getting humanitarian aid in and getting uh, civilians out of Gaza. And all of this, of course, is taking place as there are also growing calls for a general ceasefire. Uh, this is something that the Biden administration has not endorsed yet, but they are certainly aware that the pressure is growing for calls for a general ceasefire. Wolf. Certainly is MJ Lee at the White House for us. MJ, thank you very much. Meanwhile, over at the Pentagon, the Pentagon says the U.S. military is flying surveillance drones over Gaza to help search for the more than 240 hostages being held captive by Hamas. CNN's Oren Lieberman is joining us now from the Pentagon. He's got some new information. Oren, what exactly are these drones doing? Wolf, the purpose of these drones is to gather intelligence with the different sensors they have to see if they can pick up any sort of information that would help Israel and the U.S. identify where more than 240 hostages are being held. The Pentagon had acknowledged it would help Israel with special operations forces designed to gather intelligence and planning for a hostage rescue effort. But of course, key to that is knowing where the hostages are. So take a look at these flight tracks that show you where the drones have been flying, focusing their efforts on southern Gaza there. It's unclear what or how much they've learned or been able to pass to the Israelis, but you can see there the focus, the effort, and the help the U.S. has been providing to Israel in this case in the hostage rescue effort, obviously a key focus of both countries. In terms of what the drones are doing, take a look at this. These are unarmed surveillance drones. They are not armed with any sorts of missiles. They're seeking intelligence on the hostages to share with Israel. And importantly, the U.S. is not using these for targeting or for intel gathering to pass on to the Israelis for targeting. So the U.S. very clear there, as the Pentagon acknowledged earlier today, that these drones have been operating over Gaza since October 7th. In terms of what else the U.S. military is doing in the region, we now have two carrier strike groups in the Middle East, the Ford and the Eisenhower, operating and exercising together 
You can see the two carriers there at the bottom of that picture. This has been going on for three days, these exercises there. The U.S. with a massive show of force in the region to deter Iran and its proxies from trying to take advantage of the situation and get involved. The Pentagon announced uh, about a, a week and a half ago that one of those carriers, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, would soon be transiting through the Suez Canal and heading to the Middle East, putting significant forces wolf on both Israel's uh, western border and its southern border. Significant developments indeed. Oren Lieberman, uh, thank you very much for that report. Uh, joining us now, the top Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Gregory Meeks. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Let me get your reaction, first of all, to this Israeli strike on an ambulance outside of a hospital in Gaza. Videos show a very graphic scene, as you know. The IDF claims Hamas terrorists were killed in the strike. What do you make of this? Well, you know, unfortunately, Hamas is the cause of a lot of this. Hamas has utilized Palestinians as shields uh, throughout uh, uh, since they've uh, used it for a number of years. Uh, they've always used them as shields, and they continue to do so uh, And trying to hide or embed themselves uh, into an ambulance, etc., cetera, uh, is a difficult situation. I mean, I think Israel is going after a targeted striking to try to kill and dismantle all of Hamas's uh, uh, tunnels and uh, and those that were uh, responsible for the terrorist attack on Israel on October the 7th. Uh, that's uh, what they're going after. Uh, that being said, you know, you of course want to minimize our life is all lives. Israeli lives, Palestinian lives are important. Uh, and so therefore you want to minimize any, uh, any, any loss of life of civilians. But we can't lose sight, uh, Wolf, of the fact that uh, Hamas can't be trusted and Hamas is utilizing, you know, Palestinians. So Hamas is the enemy of Palestinians by utilizing them as the shields. And in many times, you know, in trying to you know, escape to get to a safe place, either telling them not to leave or preventing them from leaving. So uh, we can't ever lose sight on what the real cause is here. And that's Hamas uh, and, and, and their uh, October 7th slaughter of, uh, of, of Israeli people and telling, you know, as I think Secretary uh, Blinken is doing, you know, we've got to adhere by the rules of war and we've got to try to minimize uh, the, 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 the loss of life of Palestinians because it's heartbreaking for, for, for if you, a, a decent human being, you hate to see the loss of life, especially of uh, innocents uh, on both sides. Especially uh, innocent children as well, of course. So do you have any concerns, Congressman, that these sort of Israeli strikes ultimately will do a lot of damage to Israel's cause? Look, what I think that needs to happen, and I think it's starting to happen, I know that there's dialogue and conversation that's taking place. Uh, I do think that we need to make sure there's a safe corridor. Uh, and we've got to establish a safe corridor where the Palestinians can go and get out of, the, get out of harm's way. Um, I, my thought is... You know, it was announced uh, this morning and, and yesterday that Gaza City is now encircled. That, to me, is significantly important because if, you know, where we know that uh, a number of the Hamas leaders and others and their weapons may be, a lot of it was concentrated in Gaza City, then maybe you can start securing an area and making sure that none of the Hamas soldiers or, uh, or terrorists, they're not really soldiers, they're terrorists, none of them escapes into the safe zone which causes Israel having to chase them in the safe zones. And so, uh, and I think it's significantly and important also that, uh, that the hostages are returned. 
So I think that there's dialogue and conversation and negotiations that are taking place. And I hope that in that uh, we can develop these safe zones so that the Palestinians have a place to go because uh, they should not be uh, harmed because of the terrorist attacks that uh, that that took place by Hamas and or uh, utilized and harmed because uh, Hamas is using is utilizing them uh, as cover. The secretary of state, Antony Blinken, as you know, he's been in Israel today uh, where he discussed efforts to try to free the more than 240 hostages uh, being held by Hamas in Gaza and get aid into Gaza. He says humanitarian pauses, he used the word pauses, would would facilitate that. Do you agree with him? Yeah, I've said previously that I thought humanitarian uh, pause uh, would be appropriate to get you know, humanitarian aid in to get some American citizens and uh, other nationals out of of Gaza. Uh, I think that there should be some continued pressure on Egypt, uh, for example, to to make sure that they're working together along with Israel. Uh, But we've got to be mindful that uh, we've got to get these hostages. Uh, That is uh, number one for both the United States uh, and our citizens. We've got to get them out as well as the Israeli citizens. Uh, That's important. Uh, and uh, and Hamas, you know, I, I believe that there's some negotiations that are taking place, uh, but they cannot be trusted either because uh, they are trying to sneak their people out uh, in some of those uh, some in some of those areas. But I think that if we can establish a zone, uh, working hard, once uh, Gaza City is completely cut off, we can have uh, thereby some type of humanitarian pause. Now, let's be clear: humanitarian pause is not a ceasefire. Because remember, Wolf, there was a ceasefire on October the 6th. And we saw what took place on October the 7th. So Hamas cannot be allowed to try to uh, regain its footing, you know, get some of its people back together, gather more weapons, etc., so that it can go back. Hamas still says that they will attack again Israel. Uh, so we've got to remember that Hamas is there for one reason. They don't want peace. They want the destruction of Israel. And so they will do a number of things and, you know, and lie about it or make it look like there's something there is. We saw the problem of what took place. Uh, They tried to blame Israel with reference to the hospital that blew up when it clearly was not. So they are not to be trusted. And we cannot forget that, that who is the cause of all that's going on in Gaza right now? It's Hamas. Congressman Gregory Meeks, thanks as usual for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. And just ahead, CNN presses Congressman George Santos about alleged campaign fraud. We're going to hear some of that exclusive interview. That's next. Tonight, Republican Congressman George Santos is digging in amid new criminal charges. Our chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, sat down for an exclusive interview with the embattled lawmaker, Manu. Wolf George Santos has been defiant amid all of these charges that he has faced from the federal government. Just last month, a superseding indictment, 23 counts in that indictment, suggesting a range of things that he did illegally, including campaign finance fraud, something that he allegedly engaged with with his campaign treasurer, who had previously pleaded guilty and actually 
single-handedly singled out George Santos in court and said that they worked together and conspired to commit this fraud. I asked him about all these allegations. He sidestepped some of them, said that he will fight this in court. He denied all wrongdoing, and he pinned the blame back on his treasurer, even though his treasurer said in court that the two were in cahoots. The feds are saying uh, that you and your campaign treasurer conspired to make it appear your campaign was hitting fundraising benchmarks to get on the radar of GOP officials. You say, did you know about this? Manu, I never, ever submitted or even looked at a single report. I'm a candidate. Candidates do not handle money. Candidates do not handle finances. Candidates do not handle filings. I don't even know what the FEC filing system looks like. Nancy Marks, your treasurer, she said in court, I did these things in agreement with co-conspirator number one, that's you, for his benefit to obtain money for the campaign by artificially inflating his funds to meet thresholds set by National Political Committee. So why would she say that? People will say whatever they have to say, cut whatever deal they have to cut in order to save their hide. And I, this isn't surprising. You know, you're putting this a lot on the treasurer. You're the chief of the campaign. That's not true. You're not, but you're in charge, right? No, the, that's you know? not true. Should the I, buck stop at you is do, my question. Well, the buck should stop at the candidate. That's true. Now, Wolf, as part of this wide-ranging interview, we talked about George Santos's political future, about whether he would actually run for re-election, given the fact that he could potentially be expelled from the House as soon as this month. He did defeat an expulsion attempt earlier this week, but in a couple of weeks, we expect the House Ethics Committee to release its findings into an investigation into George Santos. If the committee recommends expulsion, I expect there to be a greater chance that a two-thirds majority could kick George Santos out of the House, which would make him just the sixth House member ever in history to be booted out from his House seat. We'll see if it comes to that. But if it does, George Santos says he's not going anywhere. He says he will run for re-election next year, put his name on the ballot, and fight to get this seat back, making very clear that he is standing firm, that he has done nothing wrong, despite all these allegations, despite admitting lying about his past, something he said that voters simply are not concerned about those large fabrications from his past. We'll see if it ultimately comes to that. But George Santos says that the voters in his district have other issues, and it's not about what he said in the past. Wolf? All right, Manu Raju, thank you very much. And uh, you can see Manu's full interview with Congressman George Santos this Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Inside Politics, right here on CNN. And we'll be right back. More now on an interview we brought you last hour of my conversation with Ghali Idan, a victim of the October 7th Hamas terror attack. As we shared before, early that morning, Hamas terrorists forced their way into Ghali's house, murdering her daughter Mayan and holding the rest of the family hostage for hours, all while streaming the attack live on Facebook. The terrorists then kidnapped Ghali's husband, Sahi, and took him into Gaza. Ghali shared with me what it's like to bury her daughter while her husband is being held hostage by Hamas. We want to warn our viewers what you're about to hear and see is disturbing. Your kids, Yael and Shachar, they're okay? Define okay. Well, you, you tell me. Um, it's like um, sanity in insanity. It's, it's one day is up and one day is down. They cry. They miss their dad. They're uh, 9 and 11 years old. Yes. They are. We buried Mayan a week and a half ago. 
they were there and it was, I think they had to do it for the closure because I don't think you understand at that age, death. I don't think you understand that your sister is dead without seeing. And actually, I hope they didn't see. The funeral was um, some kind of closure and they miss her. Shachar painted a picture that he could bury with, with Mayan. And Yael was really, really, you know, uh, quiet and, and, and didn't want to come. They didn't want to see it. It was a closed casket, of course. You couldn't see it, and they wanted the hugger. And they wanted to, to you know, just pet her hair, her curls, and hold her hand, and they couldn't. They were older sister. Yes. And they, they admired her. She was a loving kind. She was a ray of light. She was pure, pure good. Seriously, she was so good. I don't understand how can you kill. It's like killing a unicorn. You can never kill a unicorn. <laughs> but now we're really united and, and focused about bringing Tzachi's, Tzachi home and alive you, and well. What do you think? Is it, is is it, it hopeful? That he will come home? Yeah. He will come home. He will come home to us, yes. He has to. Alive and well, yes. The way he got out. I hope so. I know so. He will. I'll do anything, anything in my power or everybody's power. I will use everybody's power just to bring him and all of the hostages home, but him especially. Yes, he's my husband, he's my better half. He's my stronger half, I need him. He needs to mourn his daughter. He needs to hug his kids. He didn't do anything to deserve this. Nothing, peaceful man, he just, you know, lived in the kibbutz, he was Jewish and lived in the kibbutz, that's it. That's the reason, that's the reason Mayan was murdered. Hateful, just pure hate. Pure hate, nothing, nothing more. She didn't do anything. What an 18-year-old playing volleyball in love with her, with her boyfriend can do. What did she do to them? Nothing. Just living in the kibbutz on the border of Gaza. That's the problem. That's, that's her fault. That's why she was murdered, yes. That's why everybody was murdered. Because it was a slaughter. They killed women and children. They have a nine-month-year-old baby out there. How can you take, what did he do to you? What? What did he do to you? Nothing. Is he a soldier? What, what did he do to you? They have grandmothers, 85-year-old Alma, which is my neighbor. She's sick. She needed medicine. They took 15-year-old Daphna and eight-year-old Ella. They killed her father and her, uh, uh, her almost stepmother and stepbrother. They shot him in the back. How do you do it? Why? And they did nothing. They weren't armed. They weren't the nothing, nothing. Purely hate. That was ha that what happened. It's, it's, and, and we know that that cannot be. We had it a long time ago. We said never again.
And it did happen. It did. So I'm asking everybody, everybody, everybody in the world, in the U.S., everybody that can help, stop this hatred, stop these crimes, bring, bring them home. Bring the hostage home, please. Your beautiful 18-year-old daughter, Mayan. That's Mayan. As we say, May her memory be a blessing. And this is Tzachi. And Tzachi, let's hope that Tzachi, 49-year-old dad, a father who's been kidnapped, being held in Gaza by Hamas, let's hope he comes home soon. Yes. When, they, when he comes home, let me know. I'd like to come meet him. Okay. I will. I will. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Okay. I will be right back. With the Trump family taking the stand in the former president's civil fraud trial, Brian Todd is taking a closer look at the roles Trump's three oldest children have played in the family business. Yeah, well, guys, it was a great day. The Trump family business and its legacy now facing what could be an existential test. Eric Trump, Donald Jr., and Ivanka Trump have spent most of their entire adult lives working for their father's company. Ivanka no longer works for the company. Eric Trump oversaw the family's golf businesses before broadening his role in recent years to become the practical leader of the Trump Organization. Both brothers saw their portfolios in the Trump Organization grow when their father was elected president and handed over the business to them. Don and Eric are going to be running the company. He trusts them more than he trusts anyone else, and he respects them. And as Donald said to me, he doesn't respect very many people, but he sure as heck respects his children. Biographer Michael D'Antonio told us all three of Trump's eldest children have been effective managers of the Trump brand, but haven't really been tested outside the family business. And he says they honed their marketing skills even before their father's wildly popular reality show, The Apprentice. James, do you think it shows fundamental lack of judgment? I think that all three Trump kids saw what their dad was doing even before The Apprentice. Uh, his ability to manipulate the media is really unrivaled. This week, Donald Trump's two eldest sons struck defiant tones on the courthouse steps after testifying in a civil fraud case brought against the Trump Organization by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Unfortunately, the Attorney General has brought forth a case that is purely a political persecution. We haven't done a damn thing wrong, and they dragged Don and I into it as collateral damage. Trump's sons and their father are accused of inflating Donald Trump Sr.'s personal wealth and the values of his properties to get favorable loans and insurance policies. They all deny wrongdoing, the brothers saying they were not closely involved in the financial statements. Before even having a day in court, I'm apparently guilty uh, of fraud for relying on my accountants to do, wait for it, accounting. What's at stake for the Trump family business if they lose this case? They're facing a uh, quasi-corporate death penalty, the Trumps and uh, the Trump uh, businesses, if uh, they lose this case. That's because the judge has already said, I'm going to pull your certificates to do business in New York. Analyst Norm Eisen says that's not all the Trumps stand to lose if the civil case does not go their way. The business could face fines in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Wolf? 
Ryan Todd, thank you very, very much. Uh, and to our viewers, thanks for watching. Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.